And you may take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 10. As our series through Genesis brings us to what is probably the, probably the least read, least studied, most ignored chapter of the entire book. It's a chapter full of long list of hard to pronounce names, unfamiliar places, mysterious peoples, And it leaves many wondering if there is really any significance and value in reading this chapter at all. In fact, one Bible commentator wrote that it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. With all those disclaimers, I'm sure that you are very excited that you came this morning uh, to hear this. To be honest, I'm excited to preach it to you. Because Genesis chapter 10 is the living Word of God. It is profitable, the Apostle Paul says, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, as we consider the context of Genesis chapter 10, we should recall that early in the book, in Genesis chapter 3, mankind, being enticed by the serpent, by the devil, rebels against God, the heavenly king, They seek to become their own gods, ruling themselves, but in the process, they ironically become slaves to sin, subject to the penalty of sin, which is the curse of death and banishment from the presence of God. But God, in His mercy, gives man hope through a prophetic promise that declares that there will be two groups of people in the world. The seed or offspring of the serpent who will continue to follow in the devil's footsteps and rebellion against God. And the seed or offspring of the woman who will trust God and follow him. And there will be conflict and enmity between these two groups. But from that second group, one particular offspring would emerge and crush the serpent, freeing mankind from the grip of sin and death. But the hopeful promise of Genesis 3.15 is clouded by what follows. Because sin, like a spiritual virus, spreads from generation to generation. And as a result, we see a proliferation of violence and hatred and sexual sin and self-centeredness. And just like in the Garden of Eden, God's response to man's sin is a judgment of death. This time through the great flood described in Genesis 6 through 8, which would destroy all of rebellious humanity. But also, just like in the Garden of Eden, God uh, shows mercy because He has not forgotten His promise. And by God's grace, there was still one righteous man in the world, Noah, an offspring of the woman, whom God uses to save and preserve the human race. And God God told Noah, he had Noah build an ark and thus spares Noah and his family from death. And so, when you get to Genesis chapter 9, there is a new creation. There's a new beginning. Noah's very name means rest. The reader then is given a glimmer of hope that perhaps Noah is the one that will once and for all crush the serpent, bringing freedom and rest from the curse of sin. And yet... Though the flood wiped the earth clean, it was insufficient to cleanse the human heart from sin. And Noah falls into sin himself through his drunkenness. And so, in the end, Noah ends up being seen to be as all the rest of us. Flawed, broken, imperfect, 
sinful. Yes, he was saved, but only by God's grace. And because of all that, Noah himself would be insufficient to save anyone from sin. What's more, while all of humanity outside the ark perished in the flood, the seed of the serpent, like an infiltrating enemy, was inside the ark. As we also saw in chapter 9 last week, one of Noah's sons, Ham, was exposed for the rebel he was as he disgraced and disrespected his father. And so Noah, speaking prophetically, curses Canaan, Ham's son. Canaan and his descendants will follow in the same hard-hearted, rebellious footsteps of Ham. And so Genesis 9, which began on a hopeful note, ends on a sour note. In fact, it ends with death. Genesis 9.29 says, All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The problem of sin, curse, and death remain. And so, as Steve said last week, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And yet, God is up to something. He is always up to something. Death does not have the final word. Genesis chapter 9 is not the end of the story. Nothing has the power to hinder God's great plan of redemption from moving forward. And we should thank God that there is a Genesis chapter 10. And so, with that said, I'd like you to stand with me now in the reading of the word of our God. Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripta, and Togomar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Ramah, and Saptica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Labanin, Naphtuim, Pathrusim, Kalushim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations." To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. 
Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmurath, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Diklah, Obal, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word. I pray that you would help us to regard it as such. Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to understand how we are to think about a chapter like Genesis chapter 10, a chapter often ignored, and yet in here is something that you want us to know. So, Father, I pray that you would guide us now as we walk through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Genesis chapter 10 is known as the Table of Nations. Um, Now, this should also be in your uh, bulletin. This may be very hard to see. It's a little little washed up there. I'm not impressed with that at all. But if you have a bulletin, there's a good color copy in there, and and you might even have this in your your Bible. And if you have an ESV study Bible, it's the exact same map that I have up there. They did did a good job uh, with that map. But here is the ancient Near East, and here is listed the various nations mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Now, when the Bible talks about nations, it's referring to peoples, people groups, ethnicities. And this table is a record of the descendants and people groups that come from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as they spread out across the world. But this table doesn't just show us things about the origins of various peoples. It actually, and I think even more importantly, tells us some specific things that we need to know about God. And the first thing the table of nations teaches us about God is that He is the God who is over the nations. Now Moses, in writing Genesis, intends to help his his fellow Hebrew Israelite audience to know the one true God. These Hebrews had been delivered from slavery out of Egypt, a land full of idols and false gods. In fact, Israel themselves had fallen into idolatry while they were in Egypt. But now God, through Moses, has rescued Israel out of Egypt. And he is leading them to the land that he has promised to give them, the land of Canaan. Which, by the way, is another land full of idolatry and false gods. And so on the way to the promised land, Moses, in writing Genesis, is giving them a crash course in theology. Moses wants to show them who God is. Now, we've already seen in the early chapters of Genesis, especially in the creation account how God is distinguished from the false gods of the pagans. But here in chapter 10, we see something else about God that sets him apart, and that is his authoritative, sovereign oversight, knowledge, and control over the whole world. The pagans saw the gods as beings whose interest, power, and oversight was limited to a particular people in a particular region. And so a traveler in the ancient Near East... Uh, might double-check to see if he'd crossed a border into a new region so that he would know which deity to pray to and seek favor from. I'm moving from the plains into the hill country. I need to pray to the God of the hills now. I'm moving into the territory of the Girgashites. 
I better seek favor from that God. Not so the one true God. Uh, The God of the Scriptures exercises oversight over all of the nations, over all of the peoples. By the way, we have 70 names in this table of nations. Seventy. Now, this is not an exhaustive genealogy. Moses could have put way more names down, but he deliberately brings us to the number 70, a number which, biblically speaking, is associated with completion, with fullness. And so what Moses wants us to see when we look at the table of nations is the whole world. You might say, Deemer, that that map is just a part of the world. But that misses the point. From these three sons of Noah comes everyone else. Everyone everywhere is related to Shem or Ham or Japheth or a mixture, a combo of those. And so in the table of nations, Moses wants us to have every tribe and tongue and people group in mind. And he wants us to see that God has his eye on every single one of them. Not one of them escapes his notice. Not one of them is outside the scope of his sovereign plan. There are no rogue people groups running around unaccounted for. Unlike the pagan deities of old, God's oversight doesn't end at some sort of geographical boundary or landmark. His jurisdiction is worldwide. He is everywhere. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. That ancient Israelite who might be anxious about going into the promised land to take it over from the enemies of God has, has in the table of nations a reminder that there is not a single place in the world outside of God's jurisdiction and presence. This whole world is God's world. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The table of nations is also a reminder that God controls the details of every person and every nation. Look at the map again. These different people groups are not living there simply because they want to live there. It was not ultimately up to them. Initially, they didn't want to live there. If you read the next chapter, chapter 11, you'll read the story of the Tower of Babel, where the descendants of Noah, they wanted to settle in a particular place. They didn't want to be scattered. They were in rebellion against God's authority. And God, in response, confuses the languages of the people, and he scatters them throughout the face of the earth. So chapter 11 is is sort of a flashback story, you could say. The migration of the peoples in chapter 10 is happening as a result of the sovereign hand of God as detailed in chapter 11, which, by the way, he could not do any of this if he was just a local deity with limited influence. But the psalmist says in Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. 
The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts further expounds on God's sovereign control over the nations when he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, check this out, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God is sovereign even over the histories of different nations and peoples. When they rise, when they fall, when their boundaries or borders change, God is intimately involved in all of these details everywhere, even to the farthest reaches of the earth. That point is further underscored in these opening verses in chapter 10. Now, again, that's not a good picture of the map up on the screen. Whenever I flash that, just go ahead and look at your, your map in your, in your bulletin if you want. That'll kind of be your, your cue to, to do that. <clears throat> And look with me here also at the same time. You can have your map in one hand, you can have the Bible in the other hand if you want. But look, look with me at these first few verses which highlights the line of Japheth. And by the way, it's really interesting. Typically when we hear about the three sons of Noah, in what order are we given those names? Who's usually mentioned first? It's Shem. Shem, Ham, Japheth. That's the, that's the typical pattern. But here in chapter 10, Moses breaks the pattern and Japheth is mentioned first. And and he's given the least amount of attention. One of the reasons, I think, is because the people of Japheth are geographically the most distant from the Israelites. They're not as prominent in the Old Testament story. And as far as the Hebrews are concerned, the people of Japheth were considered to be at the ends of the earth. They're at the fringes of the known world. And so he starts out with the furthest away and begins to work his way closer and closer to to the the heart of the action where the the rest of the story is going to be taking place. So there was not much interaction between the Jews and the descendants of Japheth in the Old Testament. And yet, the text is telling us here that the people of Japheth are where they are because God put them there. Again, you can't read Genesis 10 without having in mind Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel incident where God scatters everyone. People of Japheth are where they are because God has put them there. God's hand reaches to the ends of the earth. Now, the Japhethites form the basis for what is known as the Indo-European peoples. And we don't have time to consider all the people in this genealogy. It really is a fascinating study. Uh, But we'll just just meet a few for today. You can look at verse 2, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Magog is associated with Russia. Next on the list you have Madai. Madai is the father of the Medes in Persia. Uh, Next you see uh, uh, Javan, uh, who is recognized as being associated with the Greek peoples. We actually get the word Ionian from Javan. The Greeks trace their lineage actually back to someone called Japetos. And you can see in that name the resemblance to Japheth. Uh, Next up you have on the list, uh, you see names like uh, Tubal and Meshach. Uh, These are also associated with Russia. In fact, you hear something of Tubal's name in the Russian city of uh, Tobolsk, which is on the river Tobol. And Meshach gives us the name Moscow. Verse 3, you have the sons of Gomer. Uh, Ashkenaz is listed there. Even today in the Yiddish language, uh, Ashkenaz is the description for Germany. The descendants of Japheth being Indo-Europeans 
uh, didn't just migrate to the north and west into Europe, but also to the east, into Persia, and even further into India. In fact, linguists will tell you that Sanskrit, which is an extinct language, is actually the base of both eastern and western languages between India and Europe. That should not be all surprising uh, if, if all of these folks had a common ancestor in Japheth. And in time, of course, the descendants of Japheth, particularly those of European stock, spread further and further west, even into the New World, across the sea, across the ocean, to the Americas. And so now you've got Japhethites everywhere. This planet's crawling with Japhethites, which should remind us of Noah's blessing to Japheth in chapter 9, verse 27, where he says, may God enlarge Japheth. And indeed, that has happened just as the Bible predicted. Japhethites span the globe. And God is the one who is sovereignly enlarging Japheth. Again, the Lord is not some local tribal deity with His hand only on one people. He is God of the nations, God over the nations, involved in the rise and the fall and the spread of peoples to the uttermost parts of the earth. How different this is from the pagan gods of old how different this is from false concepts of of God that we have today, where many people believe in God, but believe that we are the final determiner of our destiny and what happens. Scriptures are showing us that that is not so, that God is sovereignly and intimately involved in every aspect of our lives, even where we live. Some of us may not not like that. Uh, Some of us may prefer a God who is very distant and uninvolved, and only shows up when we need Him. The Scriptures tell us that the imminence and the sovereignty of God in our lives should not be a source of frustration, but actually a source of comfort. That's why Jesus comforts His fearful disciples with a reminder of the sovereignty of God in all things. He tells them that not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your Father. He says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore... You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus' point is that if God exercises sovereign control and care over the life of a sparrow, if he's involved in all those details, how much more can you count on him to be involved positively in your life? He is sovereign over sparrows, over nations, over you. That should be of great comfort to those who love and trust God, but it should be a source of grave concern for those who remain in rebellion against God, because the God who is over the nations is also the God who will judge the nations. Starting in verse 6, Moses now turns his attention from the Japhethites to the descendants of Ham, and he devotes much more time to this group, giving us more names, many more names, and, and more information. Of course, the descendants of Ham are in much closer proximity to the Hebrews than the people of Japheth are, and they factor into the story of Israel in a much more regular and prominent way. So, look at verse 6, there's your map again, verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Now, Cush is associated with Ethiopia and the Sudan, and uh, his family spread also into the region of Arabia. Now, verse 8 puts the spotlight on one of Cush's descendants. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. may not mean that Cush was a direct, there was a direct father-son link there, maybe a couple of generations removed. 
from Cush. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Nimrod stands in Genesis chapter 10 as a representative for rebellious man. In fact, Nimrod's very name means, we shall rebel. Nimrod is not interested in the kingship of God. He's a rebel, and he becomes a king himself. He is the first to lead a major world empire. He's the founder of Babylon and Nineveh, two cities that throughout the Bible become representations of sin and corruption and extreme hostility towards God. Text says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Some of you might lighten up when you hear that. You know, the Carrie's like, oh, a hunter, that's cool. I like hunters. It doesn't mean that he bagged a lot of deer. That's not the point here. It means that Nimrod was a man hunter. He was a killer. He was a conqueror. He was a great warrior. Now, the mention of Babel in the land of Shinar links Nimrod to the Tower of Babel account in chapter 11, which we'll discuss in further detail next week. But this association with Babel further underscores Nimrod's willful, fist-raising rebellion against God. But it should also remind the reader that rebellion against God is always futile in the end. Because as we'll see next week in chapter 11, man's uprising against God at Babel ends in a crushing, humiliating defeat as God judges them and scatters the people. Now going back up to verse 6, we have mention of what becomes another major player in Israel's history, and that's Egypt. Egypt is huge in the Old Testament, and Egypt emerges as the first nation that severely oppresses the people of God. But as with Nimrod and Babel... Moses' original readers would have, upon seeing the name of Egypt, also be reminded of God's devastating judgment. Israel witnessed firsthand, with their own eyes, the devastating plagues that ruined Egypt. And so, as with Babel, something that was once so mighty and fearsome becomes crushed and overthrown. Also mentioned in verse 6 is Canaan, who, of course, is the cursed son of Ham. Canaan follows in Ham's godless footsteps and establishes a legacy of rebellion against God and hostility towards God's people. Canaan settles in a land that becomes named after him. Skip down to verse 15 and you'll see Canaan's descendants. One Bible teacher says that verses 15 through 19 reads like a most wanted list of Israel's enemies. It's a rogues gallery full of villains and threats to the people of God. Verse 15 says, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn. Perhaps the most famous villain to come from Sidon would be Queen Jezebel. Look at verse 16, the Jebusites. Now, the Jebusites were living in in Canaan in a city called Jebus, also known as Jerusalem. And eventually in the book of 2 Samuel, you'll see King David defeat the Jebusites and claim Jerusalem for Israel. And you, of course, see many more names that will factor frequently and significantly into Israel's history, the Amorites and the Girgashites and so on. Look at verse 19. You have mention of Sodom and Gomorrah, which will come into play in a big way in just a few chapters from now in Genesis as two Canaanite cities infamous for their violence and sexual perversion. But also, as with Egypt and as with Babel, these rebellious cities were judged by God and destroyed. 
Now, the reason why Moses gives such extensive treatment to the Canaanites is because the Canaanites are the peoples dwelling in the land that God has promised to give to Israel. These are the peoples that are marked out by God for judgment and destruction because of their wickedness. Remember the oracle of Noah in chapter 9 and the curse upon the Canaanites. And the invasion of the Hebrews into the promised land will be God's sword of judgment on these Canaanites. And the original readers and hearers of Genesis, as they contemplate this section of the table of nations detailing the descendants of Ham in verses 6 through 20, could in no way miss the two great themes that surround all of these names on this list. Rebellion and judgment. Over and over, these people, these cities, these nations are reminders of the terrifying but biblical reality that the wages of sin is death. And, of course, this follows the pattern that began in the beginning of Genesis when God says to Adam and Eve, The day that you eat of this fruit, the day that you rebel against me, you will surely die. And yet they wouldn't listen. They sinned. Adam and Eve said with Nimrod, we shall rebel. And death came. And in Genesis 6, you have a world full of sin and violence. A whole world saying, we shall rebel. And the flood came and wiped them out. And here in Genesis 10, you have a list of people who are raising their fist towards God. Saying, we shall rebel. And what great names on this list. Egypt, Nimrod, Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah. The mighty warlords of Canaan. It's quite a list. And it's a list of dead people. It's a list of people in hell. And it's not just the people of Ham that are in trouble. These specific groups are exemplary of the whole world. Later on in the Bible, we'll meet those of Japheth who are lost in sinful idolatry, like the Persians and the Romans. Later on, we we meet people of Shem, like the Pharisees, who honor God with their lips, but their hearts have fallen far from them. People whom Jesus calls children of the devil, of the serpent. And today, in the melting pot of America, a mighty land full of Japhethites and Hamites and Shemites, we we, we think like our ancestors that we can go on sinning against God, but that with us... It'll be different. Some people say that a definition of insanity is to repeat the same thing over and over again and expect different results. We follow in the footsteps of Adam, of Ham, of Nimrod, of Egypt. God says, do this. We say, no, I know better. I'll do that instead. And somehow we think we'll be the exception. We won't be judged. We'll be just fine. Friends, that's insanity. The scriptures say that we all, apart from God are by nature children of wrath. And so, as we look at this list in Genesis 10 of these rebellious nations, as we look at this rogues gallery of the enemies of God, we should not look at it with self-righteous arrogance, thinking ourselves to be superior to those fools. We should recognize that our picture could easily be right there next to Nimrod's and Canaan's. Oh, there's, there's Deemer Webb right there, that scoundrel. He deserves to be on that list. Indeed, he does. We are no better than anyone because we too have done things worthy of judgment and death. And left to our own, we would have no hope. And yet, God's up to something with the nations. He's always up to something. 
And so we see the God who is over the nations is the God who will judge the nations, but we also are reminded in this text that God is the God who will redeem the nations. Moses, in this table of nations, deals with Japheth and Ham first. One reason, as I said earlier, is because he starts out with the peoples furthest away from the Hebrews, works his way in. I think another reason he's doing this, and we've seen, we see Moses doing this in, in various genealogies in the book of Genesis. He's, he's clearing the way for what he really wants us to focus on. He, he, he gets uh, the lesser important things out of the way to help draw our attention to the big thing. And here he wants us to focus on the family of Shem, which is the focus for the rest of the book of Genesis after Genesis 11. Because it is through Shem that the redemptive plan of God will move forward. Let's go down to verse 24. It says, Arpachshad, who, by the way, was Shem's son, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Now, it is from Eber that we get the word Hebrew. So here we see the beginnings of the Hebrew people. And this is what Moses is most interested in. Because if you continue to follow this genealogy, which picks back up in chapter 11, verse 10, you will see that the line of Eber leads all the way down to one man in particular, a man known as Abram the Hebrew. And God appears to Abram, a man who was at one time a pagan idol worshiper living in Mesopotamia. And he says to Abram in Genesis 12, Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and in you all of the families, all of the peoples, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God, who cursed Adam and Eve because of their sin, who unleashed the curse of the flood judgment upon a world because of their sin, who cursed Canaan because of sin, who tells us throughout the Scriptures that all humanity is under a curse because of our sin, this same God also intends to bring blessing. Not just to one people, but to the peoples, to the nations of the earth. That Israelite, on his way from Egypt to the Promised Land, hearing the book of Genesis for the first time, needed to know this. He needed to know that he was a descendant of Abram the Hebrew. And and though he was going into the promised land with his fellow Israelites to bring God's judgment on the Canaanites, he also, being a part of the house of Abraham, was going into the promised land to bring blessing to the world. Look at the map again. And look at where the promised land is. If you're not sure where it is, it's right here in that area, right there. Again, you can see better on the map in your bulletin. But look where it is. Take note of that. It's not in the east. It's not in the far west. It's right there in the middle. That's not accidental. The promised land was a crossroads between three continents and many peoples. That's why so many people wanted to control it and have access to it. In Exodus chapter 19, God tells Israel why he rescued them from Egypt. He he tells them 
that you are a treasured possession of mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel, placed right in the middle of these nations, was to serve in a mediating priestly role to the nations, to be a beacon of light to the godless people around them in darkness. They were to be distinct and different exemplifying the goodness and the character of God so that the nations on the outside would look and see and repent and come to the God of Israel who is the God of the nations. Israel was not simply to to be a harbinger of judgment but an instrument of blessing. And so even the geographical placement of Israel, where it is on the map, was strategic in the plan of God. Now, we read part of this verse earlier, but let's read the whole thing. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, why did he do that? It wasn't random. He did it. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him And find him. The peoples are strategically placed by God where they are in the world to position them for salvation. And how did God how did Israel bring salvation? Ultimately, for their part, it was not because they were so good and so awesome. In fact, you read the rest of the Old Testament, Israel failed in so many ways to be what God had called her to be. But God is ever faithful to his promise. And Isaiah chapter 9 gives a beautiful word of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9 actually starts at verse 1. It says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's Israel. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The nations. There's that word again. Galilee, this region of Israel, would receive great glory and would be a beacon of hope for the nations, for the peoples. It says in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them... Has light shown. And centuries later, through Israel, a place that was the crossroads of the nations, from a mocked, obscure backwater town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee, the offspring of the woman would emerge from the house of a lowly carpenter and say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And this man, Jesus Christ, would bring light and blessing to the world. He would provide redemption from the curse of sin and death. How? By becoming a curse. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And why? To what end? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations. On that tree, 
on that cross, Jesus takes the sin of sinners upon himself and as a substitute suffers the death and hell we deserve, crushing the serpent through his death and resurrection in order that all who by faith receive him as their substitute are free from the curse of sin and death and hell. Because, friends, God's intention has never been to bestow blessing on just one people, one tribe, one group. God seeks maximum glory, maximum exaltation. God will save people from every tribe and every tongue and every language because he deserves nothing less. In the Old Testament, God placed Israel strategically where they were in the midst of the nations for the sake of the nations so that people would come and see the God of Israel. But in the New Testament, we enter into a new phase of God's strategy. In the Old Testament, it was mainly come and see. In the New Testament, it is go and tell. And so the church was born in the land of Israel 2,000 years ago, strategically positioned by God at the crossroads of the nations with vast networks of Roman roads going in and out of Israel, stretching in all directions towards the peoples of the world. And in that crucial moment in history, the resurrected Jesus turns to his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The mandate has not changed. It is in effect today and binding to every Christ follower in this room. As redeemed people of God, we should care about the nations because God cares about the nations. There is no room for racism and ethnocentrism and smug superiority in Christianity. We should want to spread his gospel worldwide amongst the peoples for their good and for God's glory. It's our main purpose as God's people. As the scriptures tell you in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you, Harbin's Church, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. Examples of God's compassion for the nations abounds all over the scriptures. We see Rahab, a Canaanite, redeemed and saved by God in the book of Joshua. We see God bringing the wicked city of Nineveh to repentance in the book of Jonah. We see a Roman centurion and an Ethiopian eunuch come to Christ in faith. And one of the most beautiful prophecies in the entire Bible is in Isaiah chapter 19, which points forward to the redemption of Egypt and Assyria, the classic enemies of Israel associated with the seed of the serpent. And yet the prophet says a day is on the horizon when they too will partake of the same blessings of Israel. Isaiah says in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In Psalm 72, 
looks forward to a time when all of the nations will enjoy the blessed reign of the Messiah. Pastor Steve read this earlier. Psalm 72 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. Notice that. Both Tarshish and the coastlands were mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 under the people of Japheth. It goes on to say, May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Now, who are they? Who's Sheba and Seba? Well, they're listed in the line of Ham. And then in verse 11, it says, May all nations serve him. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer in Psalm 72 for the Davidic kings of Israel. Martin Luther wrote of Genesis chapter 10, and I'm I'm winding this down. Martin Luther wrote of Genesis chapter 10 that, he says this, this very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, I wonder if some of you considered that this morning, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed on to Seth. From Seth to Noah. From Noah to Shem. From Shem to Eber, from whom the Hebrew nation received its name as the heir for whom the promise about the Christ was intended. Martin Luther looked at Genesis chapter 10 and saw the thread of God's story of redemption running all throughout it. And so the plan of God is that the nations scattered in Genesis 10 will become the nations redeemed. It does not mean that everybody will be redeemed, but it does mean that somebody from every nation will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And that is why we do missions and evangelism everywhere. Missions exist, John Piper says, because worship doesn't. And our burning desire should be to see Jesus Christ exalted and worshipped high and lifted up in every corner of the world amongst every people of the world. We long to see the fulfillment of Psalm 86.9 that says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. May that day come soon. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you are helping us to see that even something like Genesis chapter 10 is not full of dead words, but that it is part of the living word of God, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we see in Genesis 10 your concern for the nations, and I pray that as people of God, you would help us to share that same interest and concern. Father, forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for living in our own little bubble. Well, I'm saved. Sorry about everybody else. I'm not going to tell anybody else about Jesus because people might make fun of me. Oh, God, help us. Help our hearts. Help our loveless hearts and give us a heartbeat for the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.